You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 218, Onondaga Creek. In April of 1779, the Americans launched an offensive into the Onondaga villages of western New York. Before we get into the details of the attack, I thought it might be a good time to take a step back and go over the role of the Iroquois Confederacy in the war. The Confederacy dated back hundreds of years, possibly even before Columbus reached America. Initially, the Confederation consisted of five tribes— the Mohawk, the Oneida, the Onondaga, the Cayuga, and the Seneca. In the early 1700s, a sixth tribe, the Tuscarora, also joined the Confederacy. As I've explained in earlier episodes, the Iroquois were a relatively small group of native tribes living in what is today upstate New York and southern Canada. Based on language, they are thought to have migrated to this area from the south, settling amongst the much larger groups of Algonquin-speaking native groups within this region. The Confederacy particularly found itself threatened after the French in Quebec allied with many of the Algonquin tribes that were the traditional enemies of the Iroquois. The power and influence of the Iroquois really took off in the late 1600s, after the Iroquois began a trading relationship with the Dutch in the New Netherlands. After the British took control and changed the name to New York, the Iroquois continued that beneficial relationship with the British. Trade gave the Iroquois access to guns and other Western technology that allowed them to extend their reach as far south as the Carolinas and as far west as the Mississippi River. The Iroquois claimed authority over all the tribes living in those areas, including the Shawnee, Delaware, and Mingo tribes. It asserted authority to negotiate on their behalf and enriched itself by selling large amounts of land belonging to these other tribes to the European colonists. Although the Iroquois generally worked and traded with the British, the Confederacy made an effort to remain neutral in disputes between Britain and France. During the French and Indian War, when the Iroquois lands became the main point of contention between the two armies, Iroquois neutrality eventually gave way to backing the British, especially after the war seemed to be going in favor of the British. Much of this was due to the efforts of Sir William Johnson, a trader who became very influential among the Iroquois and received an appointment as British agent for the Iroquois the British made some efforts to protect Iroquois lands. The Royal Proclamation of 1763 prevented new settlements west of the Allegheny Mountains. This proclamation reserved most Iroquois lands for the Iroquois. 
In addition, to relieve pressure on its New York lands, the Iroquois sold most of the lands in what is today Western Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Ohio in order to direct Western movement to those lands and away from Iroquois homelands in New York. Despite Iroquois efforts to redirect migration, the removal of the French threat and the establishment of Western New York as British lands encouraged a great migration to the West by colonists into much of upstate New York in the late 1760s and early 1770s. When the revolution began, the Confederacy at first tried to remain neutral. However, the easternmost tribe, the Mohawk, ended up supporting the British and fighting with them. This was largely due to the efforts of Joseph Brandt, who was closely aligned with the family of British agent Sir William Johnson. The westernmost tribe, the Seneca, also joined with the Mohawk in backing the British and sending warriors to fight with them. The other tribes attempted to maintain their neutrality, but after Mohawk and Seneca warriors began marching through their lands with the British, the Oneida sided with the Americans and the Tuscarora joined them. The other two tribes, the Cayuga and the Onondaga, continued to remain neutral, hoping that this whole thing would just go away. By 1777, though, the war was raging in upstate New York. Neutrality was not really an option. Many Cayuga and Onondaga warriors joined with the British efforts, despite the official tribal neutrality. In early 1779, about 40 Onondaga warriors joined the Oneida to fight on behalf of the Americans. The rest of the tribe, though, threw in their lot with the British-aligned forces under Joseph Brandt, or simply held out hope that individual neutrality might somehow protect them. As I've covered over several earlier episodes, the Iroquois raised hundreds of warriors who fought with British and Loyalist forces in the effort to return upstate New York to British control, and to kill or remove anyone of the Patriot population who was in that area. They fought under General St. Leisure at Oriskany. After the British withdrew, the Iroquois continued to carry out additional raids throughout the region. These efforts led to many smaller attacks and massacres, including the notable Cherry Valley Massacre in November of 1778. These attacks had their intended effect. Many Americans fled their homes and farms in the areas that were subject to attack. Many others, afraid but with nowhere to go, demanded continental protection from the Indian and Loyalist threat. New York leaders lobbied Continental Congress, which passed a resolution on February 27, 1779, authorizing George Washington to take whatever measures he deemed necessary to remove this threat. Washington reached out to General Philip Schuyler, who was from this area, and one of his most senior generals, to see if Schuyler would command the expedition. Schuyler, however, begged off. He had just gotten through his court-martial a few months earlier and was done with the army. He had already sent his resignation to Congress, although Congress had not accepted it yet. Washington hoped this new command might convince Schuyler to remain in the army and defend his home. As I said, though, Schuyler was just not interested. Next, Washington turned to General Horatio Gates, who was still recovering from his alleged role in the Conway Cabal and really not doing much of anything for a military command. Gates, however, also passed. 
he did not want to take on this new command, arguing that the campaign would be too rigorous for the 51-year-old general. So instead, he passed Washington's instructions to General John Sullivan, who was still in Rhode Island, following his failure to expel the British in late 1778. Sullivan accepted the assignment, but it would take him several months to assemble the force that he would need to carry out the expedition. He would eventually be ready to move by summer, but that will have to be the topic of a future episode. In March and April of 1779, the people of New York were demanding an immediate answer to this problem. As winter was turning to spring, everyone feared that the Iroquois and Loyalist regiments would resume their attacks on the people of western New York. That spring, one of the largest Continental garrisons in the region was the Continental Force stationed at Fort Stanwix, although it was called Fort Schuyler by the Patriots at the time. Fort Stanwix was probably the most important fort in the area after the destruction of Fort Ticonderoga. It sat in the heart of Iroquois territory and had been the site of the treaty with the Iroquois many years earlier. The Americans had lost Fort Stanwix to the St. Ledger expedition about a year earlier. General Benedict Arnold was able to take the fort and reestablish control of the area. In early 1778, the fort had about two regiments of Continental soldiers under the overall command of Colonel Goose Van Shake. Colonel Van Shake was an experienced Continental officer. He came from an old Dutch family that had been among the first European settlers at Albany. In fact, his father had been the mayor of Albany. During the French and Indian War, the 20-year-old Goose received a lieutenant's commission in the New York militia. He was wounded in the 1758 assault on Fort Ticonderoga, the same assault that led to the death of General William Howe's brother, George. Goose received promotion to captain, leading militia companies at the battles of Fort Frontenac and Fort Niagara. By the end of the French and Indian War, he had risen to major, then lieutenant colonel during Pontiac's Rebellion. In the years leading up to the Revolution, Van Shaik sided with the Patriots, signing a protest against the Stamp Act, and he later served on Albany's Committee of Correspondence. At the creation of the Continental Army in June 1775, Van Shaik raised the 2nd New York Regiment for the Continentals from those he commanded in the militia. He received a commission as a colonel. Less than a year later, he took command of the 1st New York Regiment after Colonel Alexander McDougall received a promotion to general. Van Schiech served under General Arthur Sinclair for the defense of Fort Ticonderoga in 1777. He was wounded in the face a second time, nearly 20 years after the assault at Fort Ticonderoga, Van Schiech received a wound during the American retreat from Ticonderoga. After some recuperation, Van Schiech returned to the main army in time to spend winter at Valley Forge, then command a brigade at the Battle of Monmouth. After Monmouth, Van Schiech returned to New York, where he took command of Fort Stanwix in November of 1778. The Continentals recognized that the Loyalists and their Indian allies were engaged in a campaign to drive Americans out of the region, not only by terrorizing the inhabitants, but also through a calculated policy of destroying property, burning homes, running off cattle, and destroying grains. Without sufficient food or shelter to get through the winter, the inhabitants would have to move elsewhere. 
The Continental Leadership, in cooperation with New York leaders, developed a plan to use the same strategy against the Iroquois who refused to ally themselves with the Patriots. General Schuyler had written to Washington in March that the Iroquois could probably raise no more than 2,000 warriors for battle. On the assumption that the British leadership in Quebec would not risk sending additional support to the Iroquois, if the Continentals could produce a larger force of about, say, 3,000, they could fend off any attack and use that force to go on a campaign of destruction against Iroquois villages and food stores. The largest threat came from the Seneca, which was the Iroquois tribe farthest to the west. The Mohawks in the eastern part of the Confederacy had already fled to Canada by this time. The next most eastern tribes, the Oneida and Tuscarora, had pretty firmly allied themselves with the Americans. That left the Onondaga and the Cayuga tribes as problems. Although the Seneca made up the bulk of the forces that could be raided against them, the Americans would have to go after the Onondaga and Cayuga tribes that were still claiming neutrality. Otherwise, the Loyalist forces would be able to subsist on food and shelter that they could coerce from these neutral tribes. The Americans determined that they could not allow neutral tribes to remain in place. Any warriors who would not ally themselves with the Americans would be treated as enemies. The first step would be to take out the Onondaga, who were immediately to the west of the Oneida. The Onondaga were probably the smallest of the Iroquois tribes at the time, with perhaps a few hundred members total. After 40 warriors left to join with the Oneida, there were perhaps only about 120 warriors left in the tribe. Despite this small size, the Continentals hoped to surprise the enemy so that they could not remove their supplies or call for reinforcements. There would be no further warnings that the Americans would treat all non-allies as enemies. The Americans wanted the element of surprise when they launched their first campaign. Washington also encouraged the use of Continentals rather than militia. The Continentals were more disciplined and reliable, meaning that a smaller group of soldiers would be more effective for the mission. In early April, Colonel Van Schaak made his way from Albany to Fort Stanwix, which sat in friendly Oneida territory. He outfitted a force of companies from the various Continental regiments, totaling just over 550 men, including a company of riflemen. He selected Lieutenant Colonel Marinus Willett and Major Robert Cochran as his field officers. When Van Schiek arrived at Fort Stanwix, he also found a group of 63 Oneida warriors who were eager to join the campaign, even without knowing the details. Van Schiek did not want to reveal his plans to the Oneida. He wanted his attack to remain a surprise, and feared that the Oneida, who may still have friends among the Onondaga, might warn them of the attack. He was also concerned that the warriors might prove reluctant in the field toward wiping out their neighbors. Instead, Van Schiek denied that any expedition was planned. The warriors requested that they be given some mission, so Van Schiek deployed two companies of Continentals to march with the Oneida against the Fort Oswagachi to the north on the St. Lawrence River. This sent the Oneida off in the opposite direction from where his expedition would be traveling and assured that they would be far away from the Onondaga during the expedition. The Oneida left on the afternoon of April 18th, headed for Fort Oswagachi. 
That evening, Van Schiech began to march his own troop to the west. He deployed a fleet of 29 bateaux with eight days' worth of food and other supplies that would be floated down the Woods Creek to Oneida Lake. The fleet would cross the lake, whose western border began in Onondaga Territory. The boats were not large enough to carry all the men, so they marched overland, planning to meet up with their supplies when needed. It took two days to march to the western end of the lake. The brigade was, at that point, only a few miles from their targeted Onondaga villages. The supply fleet had not yet reached the rendezvous point. Vanchiak opted to move inland without the supplies, rather than risk being discovered. That night, only a few miles from the villages, the men camped without fires to give away their positions. They slept on snow-covered ground, eating only cold food that they had brought with them. The following morning, April 21st, the advance guard captured one Indian who was out hunting, taking him prisoner. They next came across a small party with at least one woman and several children. One or two of the surprised Indians escaped and ran back to town to warn the village. As they did, the army deployed to surround the village. The settlements extended for about eight miles, meaning it took several hours to get the men into position. The Onondaga were mostly alerted to the presence of the invaders. However, most had only time to flee into the woods, abandoning all of their possessions. The soldiers looted or destroyed whatever they could find. They plundered houses of all valuables, then set them on fire. The Indians, who were apparently mostly women and children and elderly, did not put up resistance, but were mostly able to flee and escape the attackers. By about 4 p.m., the target villages and settlements had been destroyed. In his report, Colonel Van Schiek reported that his men killed 12 Indians, took three more as prisoners, as well as one white man who was living among the Onondaga. They burned at least 50 homes, killed horses and cattle, destroyed tons of beans and corn. The attackers also captured at least 100 muskets and rifles, as well as more ammunition than the men could carry. In total, the attackers returned with 34 prisoners, most of whom were a group of women who were caught by surprise while working in the fields. As soon as the soldiers completed their destruction, the men began marching back to Fort Stanwix. During the return march, they came under fire from about 20 Onondaga who had managed to catch up with the attackers and engage them in combat. The Continentals managed to kill one of the warriors before the rest fled into the woods. The remainder of the march was relatively uneventful, and the brigade returned to Fort Stanwix by April 24th. The entire round trip had covered over 180 miles and had taken just under six days to complete. Amazingly, the entire party managed to return without a single man killed. The Continentals considered the raid to be a great success. Washington announced news of the successful raid in his general orders for May 8th, Many of the Onondaga who tried to remain neutral following this attack threw their support behind the British. The raid also created a rift between the Onondaga and Oneida, which never really healed. Most of the Onondaga abandoned their land and moved north into Canada, where they could receive protection from the British. There were some accusations that the attackers had killed women and children and had raped some of the Onondaga women that they had captured. Despite these accusations, Congress passed a resolution on May 10th, quote, 
resolved that the thanks of the Congress be presented to Colonel Van Schiech and the officers and soldiers under his command for their activity and good conduct in the late expedition against the Onondagas. Generally speaking, the Americans viewed the attack as payback for the Cherry Valley Massacre, and the American leadership saw it as only the first step in what would become a much larger, brutal campaign against the Western Iroquois. Next week, General Benedict Arnold makes contact with British agents and begins taking steps toward betraying the Patriot cause. Podcasters like Mike never know who will be inspired by their message. I'm Tracy Lawson, an author and historian. I once heard a podcaster comment, we rarely see history from a woman's point of view, and decided, hey, I'm a writer, I should do something about that. So I did. My novel, Answering Liberty's Call, Anna Stone's Daring Ride to Valley Forge, is based on a true story about my sixth great-grandmother and has been called a grand and rollicking revolutionary adventure. While on a solo horseback journey to Valley Forge with supplies for her soldier husband, Anna takes on the responsibility of delivering an urgent message to General Washington. But it's not long before a mysterious man is hot on her trail and trying to steal the letter. Can Anna outwit him and make it safely to the picket line? A version of Anna's story for elementary school kids called Revolutionary Anna is the first book in my Liberty Bells series for young readers. Liberty Bells books feature female patriots who advanced the cause of liberty, and they're a great way to get kids hyped up about America 250, which is just around the corner. My books are available in print and ebook on Amazon. For listeners of the American Revolution podcast, I'm offering 15% off personalized signed copies of books ordered through my website, tracylawsonbooks.com. That's T-R-A-C-Y-L-A-W-S-O-N books.com. Use the promo code AMREVPODCAST. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter. Not Robert Hunter, as I mistakenly said in a few past episodes. Thanks also to Kurt Avard in the Robert Morris Circle. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting it with an ongoing pledge of as little as $2 a month. It helps me to keep this podcast freely available for those who cannot. As you know, I don't put anything behind a paywall, and I truly try to minimize the ads that I put on this podcast so that everyone can enjoy it. If you think that's important, I hope that you will help me with financial support. Thanks also to Mary Ford and Robert Hammond for gifts via PayPal. If you don't want to make an ongoing monthly contribution, one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo are also very much appreciated. And you can find links to any of these on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. For those of you who would like to support the show by buying t-shirts, I've added a few new designs to the American Revolution podcast storefront on TeePublic. Please use the links on my websites to go to look for the designs. There are t-shirts, mugs, all sorts of different other items, all with customized American Revolution-themed designs. Now, this week, we covered the raids on the Onondaga. Although this tribe had declared its neutrality, that did not protect them. 
neutrals still provided aid to raiders who were moving through the area. The Continentals believed that they had to remove these support systems as part of their efforts to put an end to the raids by loyalists and hostile warriors who continued to wreak havoc on upstate New York. Just as settlers had to choose a side, so did the natives. The Onondaga were a relatively small tribe of only a few hundred people. Following these raids, most of them fled north to the British-held areas in the Quebec province, although some went to other tribes in the Iroquois Nation. After the war, the Onondaga returned to their homelands in New York. But over the next few decades in the early federal era, New York took about 95% of Onondaga land and made it available for New York settlement. The Onondaga Nation still does exist to this day, but it's a rather small area near Syracuse, New York. The commander of the raid that we discussed this week, Goose Van Shake, received a brevet promotion to Brigadier General and continued to serve until the end of the war. He died in 1789, still in his 50s, apparently from some long-term effects from the battle wound that he had received at Ticonderoga during the French and Indian War. If you're interested in learning more, there's actually a short biography called Goose Van Shake of Albany, 1736-1789, The Continental Army's Senior Colonel. It's by T.W. Egley. This is a relatively short book at about 150 pages, and it was one book that went straight to paperback when it was published in 1992. The author, Theodore Egley, wrote several books that focus on upstate New York during the Revolutionary War era. My online recommendation is a National Park Service website about Van Shake and his expedition. It gives more details about the troops and the expedition itself. You can find the page on the National Park Service website at nps.gov or just use the direct link that you can find on the blog entry for this episode at blog.amrevpodcast.com. My question this week asks, is it true that if the British had won the Revolutionary War, people such as Washington and Jefferson would have been executed for high treason? Well, under British law, thousands of people in America were guilty of treason for levying war against the government. And in fact, British law defined treason quite broadly, much more broadly than we do under U.S. law. You could be convicted of high treason for offenses that included having sex with the king's unmarried daughter, just imagining the death of the king or one of his family members, or even just calling the king a tyrant. Even denying that the king was the head of the church, in other words, not being an Anglican, could be defined as high treason and the punishment for treason was death. There was at least one Scotsman who was hanged and then drawn and quartered during the war for his correspondence with the French. That happened in 1782. In reality, though, the Crown used prosecution for treason rather sparingly. Typically, the death penalty was not used on a large scale. Following the Jacobite uprising in the 1740s, which ended with the Battle of Culloden, the British did take a pretty hard line. Soldiers were sent onto the battlefield in the days following the battle to kill any wounded Scotsmen who were still alive. 
Scottish lords who were involved in the Rising and survived were taken to Tower Hill in England and executed after trials. Even some common soldiers were tried and executed. Soldiers had to draw lots for trial and execution, and it ended with about 120 common soldiers being hanged. About one-third of those had been British deserters who joined the enemy army. So, yes, there was a possibility of trial and execution for such behavior. Early in the war, Ethan Allen was captured and shipped to London for trial. I suspect that if the rebellion had been crushed early on, a few leaders would have been tried and executed as examples. General Gage made an offer of amnesty very early in the fighting, but explicitly refused to extend that offer to Samuel Adams or John Hancock, so they were pretty clearly being targeted to be used as examples once the rebellion was crushed. As the war grew, though, British leaders realized that cracking down was not the way to suppress this rebellion. They wanted to encourage the colonists to remain voluntarily part of the empire, not just out of fear. This was the practical answer because the British simply could not afford to maintain large standing armies to maintain order the way it had to do in other places such as Ireland. North America was simply too big and too far away for that level of control. British leaders also had to take into account the power of the rebels. Colonel Allen was returned to America without trial and eventually exchanged because the Continentals threatened to start executing British officers if they did not. Instead, British leaders like the Howe brothers promised pardons to all in order to end the war. The Carlisle Commission went even further, promising political reforms and even offering titles to American leaders, such as a dukedom to George Washington, if they could bring the Americans back under the king's rule. Now, admittedly, this soft-handed tactic only took place after the British saw that they had overplayed their hand in attempting to put down the rebellion militarily. At that point, they might have executed a few leaders as an example. Washington, as head of the military, would likely have been a target, although Washington seemed determined to die in battle rather than be captured. Jefferson would likely have been far down on the list of examples. Uh, His role in drafting the Declaration did not really become celebrated until well after the war had ended and independence was well established. Unless the British decide to make examples of, say, all the signers of the Declaration, they probably would have stuck to a few top leaders, such as maybe Samuel or John Adams, maybe John Hancock or Richard Henry Lee. More likely, you would have seen a great many property confiscations. Large landowners like Washington, Lee, or Schuyler would have found their estates taken from them. This would have helped the British to recover costs and made it available as rewards for those who had played important roles in the British victory. But, as I said, most of the British military leaders sent to America, including General Howe and General Clinton, who were the commanders for most of the war, were looking for a solution that brought reconciliation rather than fear. It seems much more likely that punitive actions such as executions would have been used sparingly, if at all. If you have a question that you would like me to answer, please email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com, or reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, or other social media. Well, 
that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.